Welcome to the Unqualified Scholar Podcast. My name is Todd, and I'm joined by my good friend Alyssa, and here we are to talk about something that I don't know anything about, but she didn't give me any warning. What do you know about Yetis? Okay, so Yetis, um, I, I don't know anything about Yetis, and I'm not qualified to talk about Yetis, but my memory tells me that it's like Snow Bigfoot, right? Yes. What do you know about Yetis? I know they're in a lot of kids' movies. Really? Yes. Like, can you give me an example? Um, I believe they're in Rudolph. Okay. Like they're the Yeti and Rudolph. And then... Um, well, the Abominable Snowman in the... Yeah. He Would he be a Yeti? See, that's the question. Like, I, I did do a little bit of more research on Bigfoots. And I'm, I'm, I, I, I think I'm still... So. Yeah, I, I'm still not. I'm no Bigfoot. Even though I've seen him on TikTok. It's not... I don't think he's a thing. I mean, the next one would be... Are there yetis? I'm going to go with no, but I'm not qualified to have an answer of yes or no. I, I don't do that. Okay. But what I what I do do is I, I try to read the Bible well. Um, I, I think my, my education was to read it the very best that you could, and that involved things like Greek and Hebrew and... Um, I, I never really got Hebrew. Hebrew beat me up um, and took my lunch money every day when I went to school. Uh, it was my bully. Um, I worked very, very hard to not to, to try to learn it and then mm -hmm. didn't. So um, I apologize to my Hebrew professor, Dr. Lawler. And by extension, you know, all my other professors for my inability to grasp Hebrew. It's backwards. And Hebrew is symbols. Versus letters. Yeah. Um, Correct? <clears throat> so, like, if you go back, like, a long, long time ago uh, to, like, the earliest forms of Hebrew, mm -hmm. they would sort of start with, like, an animal kind of a shape mm -hmm. that then sort of morphed over time into a letter. Mm -hmm. But Hebrew doesn't really include vowels. So... It was almost like you knew from from being in a listening culture, you sort of knew what it was, and so you saw the consonants, and then you knew the vowels. Right. Over time, they added these things called vowel points. Um, and so the Hebrew will have little dots around it. Um, I could actually show you. but um, Just trying to relate it, I did take a course... Uh, in Mandarin in college. Oh. Mm -hmm. So trying to learn the symbols, the pronunciations, and the translation. So that's what Hebrew looks like. So yeah. if, you're, if you're listening to this podcast, you can't see what we're looking at. But we have the Book of Ruth pulled up on a Bible software program, and I just pulled up the Hebrew. Now ask me if I can read it. No. <laughs> um, I mean, I could struggle my way through it, but it would really be a struggle. Having the translation three different times also kind of helps. Yeah, sure. I could I could cheat. <laughs> but that's where like word order gets kind of funky in mm -hmm. original languages. So we in English we 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 know what the sentence is talking about based on the order that the words are placed in. Correct. In Hebrew and Greek and a lot of different languages, um, like you can put the verb at the end. Mm -hmm. um, you can actually because of the way that Greek is 
structured, like the you know what the, the subject of the sentence is because of the way that the word is formed. And Hebrew would be similar, but I don't make any claims to know Hebrew. Traumatic nightmares. <laughs> so we've been talking about uh, the book of Ruth. And so I have a couple things pulled up, and we, we didn't get past the first verse in the first episode. Correct. Right? And one of the things that we're trying to help people do is uh, if you are just a regular Joe Schmuckatelli guy on the street, you know, and you want to read the Bible, and you should read the Bible, and you start in the book of Ruth, one of the things you can do is get a study Bible. And a study Bible is going to condense a lot of information into a single, like into a single volume. Mm -hmm. And a good study Bible will not necessarily give you the answers to some of the controversial things in the Bible, but they'll let you know that there's a controversy. And then you can go look for more resources to read the Bible better. Correct. So last time we talked about um, <clears throat> in the days when no. the judges ruled. Yes. And it was bad. What do you remember about the judges? Oh, that they weren't, they wanted kings, but they had the judges. Yeah, so like at the time, th this is before the people of Israel had a king, right? Mm -hmm. And they were thinking that, well, actually, they, they wanted an earthly king. They wanted a human king. Correct, yes. But really, God was supposed to be their king. Mm -hmm. And so God was supposed to rule over them through um, the law of Moses, which would create a culture. And in that culture, people would follow God, right? And so God was supposed to be the king. They wanted somebody with skin on. And so they, um, in this intro, so back up again, hang on, go, go backwards. So the people of Israel went down into Egypt, okay, as a family. Mm -hmm. While they were in Egypt, they grew and multiplied and became a nation. The Egyptian people enslaved them. And so for 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. Correct. <clears throat> then this guy, Moses, okay, God by his power, raises Moses up, <clears throat> makes him the, the leader of the people, and he brings them out of Egypt and free from slavery, which it's Juneteenth, so that's that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, brings them out of Egypt, free from slavery, and then they're sort of wandering in the desert for 40 years. Because that previous generation really didn't want to follow after God, like they... They struggled with their freedom. They struggled with the idea that they should, you know, do what God wants and, mm -hmm. and follow after him, except for a few people. So that old generation died off, and then this new generation that grew up following God day by day, eating manna in the desert. This is all in the book of Exodus, um, Genesis, Exodus. And so then they were brought into the promised land. And they were told, push out the inhabitants. Like the people that are there, you're supposed to displace them and make sure that you don't follow after their gods. And Judges is the story of that massive failure where they compromised over and over again and they began worshiping false gods. Because they were trying to be like the people around them. Because they were trying to be like the people around them, yep. And uh, <clears throat> so Judges is, is like this picture of moral degeneracy. So it's this idea that, um, like, they started strong, they were following God, they compromised with the people of the land, they started worshiping idols, which are nothing, and so as they kept, like, putting those things in their lives, 
um, God would punish them. He would send oppression. And the idea of oppression is to get your attention mm -hmm. and turn you back to following God. And at the beginning, you sort of see that the people cry out to God. They're like, oh, Yahweh, save us. And then God sends a deliverer. And then they have peace for a period of time. And then they fall back into idolatry. And I think for the church and for the modern world, we have an idol problem, right? Mm -hmm. We follow after things all the time that are constructions. They're not God. And we follow after money. We follow after entertainment. Um, and, and the rituals that we surround that, like you could think of shopping, right, mm -hmm. as a ritual. And even as a religious ritual. So it starts with the pursuit. And it could be that you're a yard sailor or that you, you are um, looking for something at Kohl's and you find the perfect thing. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the counter and you discover, oh, it's on sale. And so now mm -hmm. you have the pleasure and the release of you know, all those good chemicals that is very satisfying. Mm -hmm. And when you think about, and this is from a book called um, You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. It's really good. When you go to the mall, like a place designed for shopping, mm -hmm. what is it like? Well, it's like a garden, right? The spaces are big and open and airy. And all of the attractions are right in the window for you to walk by. And, and you go in and do your shopping and you find the thing. And you give them your money gladly, right? Mm -hmm. Swipe the credit card. And it's almost like a religious ritual. You come to the temple, mm -hmm. you know, to receive something. You go away fulfilled. Well, except it's temporary because whatever it is that you bought, you know, you'll get it home and it'll shrink. That's right. my problem. It'll shrink. Or I will grow, <laughs> one of the two. Um, or it just doesn't, it doesn't last or it doesn't, you know, the, the whole buyer's remorse thing. All mm -hmm. those things are because we put too much hope into objects. And so idolatry is really all around us. And so in the time of the judges, idols capture are the people of Israel, the people of God, and they, they suffer for it. And that's where like uh, Ruth chapter one, verse one says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, so we know right off the bat that the author is giving us a clue. Hey, this is a bad time. Be ready for dangerous, bad things to be happening. And you, they do. Mm -hmm. So uh, as you go further, and this is where, so if you're, if you're reading along in your Bible, one of the ways that you can do this is have a study Bible. And in your study Bible, so study Bible and a pad of paper, right? So write down questions. Start with the text of the Bible. So I'm looking at the NIV study Bible on the left page of the book of Ruth, page 412. Uh, there's the end of the introduction. It gives an outline. And then on the page that has the text of the Bible, there's about 25% of the page is Bible, and then there's footnotes, and then there's a map. Okay, so all those things are good, but let's start with the text of the Bible. In the days when the judges ruled, we've talked about that, there was a famine. That's the kind of thing that happened. And so one of the things you could do with that pad of paper is what is a famine? Mm -hmm. Why does it happen? And how does it affect people? Okay, so now you'd have to go look into the notes of your study Bible or even go beyond that to like a Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia and start thinking about famine. And what does that look like? Mm -hmm. We're very insulated from famine. When was the last time you had a famine? Not in my lifetime. No, no famines? Mm -mm. Ever been hungry? No. Really? 
Me neither. Like I've been hungry, but not hungry, hungry. Right. Right. Like I've missed lunch a time or two. I remember one time, I, so I used to be a truck driver. And um, truck drivers have a clock. So mm-hmm. you have a certain amount of time you can work in a day. And it was a busy day. And so I was just running from one thing to the next. I think I did like two or three loads that day. And so I ended up parked at a, <clears throat> it was a drop yard. It was like a, it, all it was was a fenced in enclosure with a bunch of trailers. And all I had to eat was whatever was in the truck with me. Mm. It was an apple and a piece of cheese. <laughs> and so that was dinner. Hungry? No. Because it was a fresh apple, right? And mm-hmm. the cheese wasn't, I didn't have to scrape any mold off of it or anything. We don't really deal with famine. You know, we've insulated ourselves from it because we have huge factory farms. We're surrounded by farmland right now. Mm-hmm. I actually got permission to glean one of some, our farmer's fields oh. after they harvest the wheat. So stand by for a fun project. So there was a famine, and that's when in the ancient world, there's no rain, there's maybe insects that come along, or um, violent tribes come and raid you, and they steal all your food, and so there's a famine. People are hungry. And so um, a man of Bethlehem, ironically the city of bread, in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And like we could do a whole thing about like chasing around Moab, because Moab, the nation, is actually from, if you go back to the book of Genesis, there's this guy Abraham. He's the father of the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. He had a nephew named Lot. Lot is the father of the Moabites through some shenanigans <laughs> and troubling circumstances. If you want to go read about that, it's in Genesis. So they're kind of cousins, nas- like they're national cousins. Who would be national cousins or like Cousins to Ohioans. People from Michigan? Yeah, probably. I mean, we did go to war with Michigan at one point in time. So, Like literally? Yeah, the Toledo War. The to- I'll have to look. Yeah. That's something I don't know anything about. You'll have to look it up. The Toledo War. Um, so just as you continue on, like as you're reading, you're writing these questions down, you go look in the footnotes. But the thing I really want to talk about doesn't happen in the text until we get a little bit further in chapter 1. And we get down here um, to, let's see, if you go all the way down to verse 10 or so, 10, 11, 12. uh, Verse 11, Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So what Naomi is talking about is something called leveret marriage. And there's a, so when you like, when you see this in the text here in Ruth, you're like, why would she have to have more sons to marry these women? Mm-hmm. These women are maybe early 20s. Um, people in the ancient world got married younger than we do. Um, so these, these ladies are still childbearing age. They were married to Naomi's sons for 10 years. So if they married at about 13, they would be 23 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and leveret marriage, if you go back to Deuteronomy... Uh, Deuteronomy 25.5. So Deuteronomy, like as you look at the book of Ruth, you know 
that the book of Judges is kind of behind, sets the context for the book of Ruth. Mm -hmm. And the book of Deuteronomy sets kind of the legal environment for the book of Judges. So every time you see something in Judges, um, for example, when Samson tears apart the lion, okay, he comes into contact with a corpse and he is a Nazarite. And so Deuteronomy would say things like, don't do this if you're a Nazarite. Maybe it's numbers, but anyway. In Deuteronomy 25.5, it says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Okay, so this is the law of the uh, leveret, the law of the lever. And so this guy is supposed to, a brother is supposed to take his dead brother's wife mm -hmm. and provide a child for her. And that child will then stay in the family, like the, the land that that brother would inherit goes to his son that his brother provided. Um, feels kind of icky and gross to us in the modern world. Um, I'm, I'm certain that my wife who, who loves my brother doesn't want to marry him. Right. Um, <clears throat> and I'm sure that's probably true for most women who are married to men who have brothers. Um, but it's in the ancient world, people didn't really marry for their emotional attachments. They married mm -hmm. for not, it's not quite as crass as economic reasons, but a larger social economic context figured into who you married and, and when and why. So um, there's another example in the Bible of it's a sort of leveret, leveret marriage. It's when the law of the leveret wasn't followed, and it comes before the law was given. So it's really kind of interesting that this cultural, traditional thing mm -hmm. handed down through families, through ages, got codified into law in Deuteronomy. And this happened in the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 38, and, and this is where, like, when you're doing this kind of thing at home, like you're keeping your finger in the book of Ruth, you're flipping back to Judges, you're, right. you're trying to think through, and this is where that piece of paper comes in so handy because you're like, what am I reading about right now? In <laughs> um, Genesis chapter 38, um, verse 6, Judah took a wife for heir, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Okay. What does Tamar have to do now? She marries uh, Er's brother, Onan. Okay. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. This is not going to be your child. This is going to be your brother's child. He's dead. He can't do the job. Okay. But Onan knew the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. That's bad, right? Right. That's violating the leveret law. He's only using this woman. He is not providing for this woman. And the child that she bears is really a form of social security, right? Mm -hmm. Who's going to take care of her in her old age? Her son would. Right. So, and he did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, stop killing my sons. That's not in the Bible. 
Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her, in her father's house. Okay, so what happens is Judah's watching this. He, he's got one son, Er, married to this woman, Tamar. Er dies. Onan goes in. Onan dies. There's one more son, but he's not old enough yet. So you go to your dad's house and hang out, and then when the time comes, I will make sure that you get married to this guy. Well... No, he doesn't. He just sort of lets her stay at her dad's house. He doesn't really give her any updates. And in the course of time, Shayla gets old enough and Tamar is not given to Shayla. In the course of time, Genesis 38, 12, Judah, Shua's daughter, died. Um, when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adelamite. When Tamer was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, a big party, mm -hmm. uh, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and he had not, she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Okay, so Tamar tricks Judah into a physical relationship, mm -hmm. right? She conceives... And she basically, like, he's going to pay her with a goat from his flock, mm -hmm. but she takes his staff as a pledge. Later on in the story, what happens is she's discovered to be pregnant. And so Judah's like, conveniently, let's kill her mm -hmm. because she has done something obviously inappropriate. So you go on a little bit further in the context. And so um, Genesis 38, 24, I love this story. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff, the things she had taken from him as a pledge for the goat that he was mm -hmm. supposed to pay her with. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Okay, so <clears throat> she has babies, mm -hmm. right, by Judah. And so the text doesn't really tell us that this happens, right? Mm -hmm. It says he did not know her again, so he was not intimate with her any longer. But does she then come into his household under his protection, where his children would be raised, right? Yes. So that she is then provided for. What's the moral of the story? Provide for your widows, right? <laughs> yes. Or they will provide for themselves. Um, and so that's that's an example of the Leveret law not being followed. Then we have in the law what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And the consequences for not doing it are that you'll be... Someone will spit in your face and they'll smack you with your sandal and they'll call you the, the house of the unsandaled. They'll just kind of insult you. Some people might look at that and go, you know, I don't want to take on the obligation of this woman. And a lot of times in the ancient world, if a woman has daughters, they're not really listed. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we don't always have like a complete family list. So Tamer could have had several daughters. Mm-hmm. But she had no sons. So now you're looking at this 
set of obligations and you're like, I don't want to get involved with that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that's where I think we come into the idea of covenant loyalty and, and true love. Because we talked about this on Sunday. And in the idea of loyal love, it's the word said, And the word said is, it's a strong, robust love. A lot of times it gets translated as kindness or loving kindness. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of love that God shows and judges. Because over and over again, the people of Israel mess up. Mm -hmm. And God keeps coming back and keeps coming back and he rescues them and he rescues them. And so that's the kind of love that we should return to God, loyalty. Mm -hmm. But then also that's the kind of love that should characterize our relationships in the church, right? So um, let's think about the ancient context first. Okay, so our study procedures. So we've written some things down on our notebook. We've hunted for some answers, mm -hmm. right? Now we would start thinking about, okay, what does this mean for the ancient world? What does this mean for the modern world? Mm -hmm. Do I have to marry my brother's wife? No. <laughs> um, but how do we as a society take care of widows? And I included the example in on Sunday of... Um, a different culture where in this different culture, they made sure they took care of grandpa, right? Mm -hmm. So, and he lived to be over a hundred. The story that I didn't tell you was about a friend of mine who died recently. She was an old woman. She's 91. She was beginning to, uh, she had dementia. Mm -hmm. So she had to go into a, an assisted facility, right? Where they would help her and take care of her. And, um, she was a very devout Christian woman. So she was very, um, <clears throat> like her moral, her morals were very tight. Um, so for her, things like foul language, she would consider those things sinful, mm -hmm. even in the hearing of them. And so she was put into this facility where the staff was rather crass. And so for her, it just rubbed up against her deeply held religious convictions all the time. Mm -hmm. And so while it wasn't necessarily a, a bad facility, it wasn't bad in the sense that she was uncared for, it was a bad experience for her because she couldn't be flexible and understand her convictions in light of being in a dark place. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was really hard for her. And so like for me, I keep thinking about what is my obligation to this person who's part of the church. Um, this was during COVID, and so the visit list was very short, mm -hmm. and the the amount of time that you could spend was just a very short time. And looking back, I wish I had visited more, you know, because mm -hmm. that would have been so important to her and an example of the kind of love God wants us to have for other people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, she recently passed away, and I'm sure that she is... Um, so much better, you know, but yeah, so that's, that's where I think like, and that's, yeah, personal failure. I didn't visit my friend enough and I should have. Um, and so the lesson for all of us is how do we take care of old people? Well, let's flip over to the new Testament. And this is where I'm not obligated to marry my brother's widow, but 
In 1 Timothy, it says this, 1 Timothy chapter 5, honor widows who are truly widows, okay? But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul is writing this to a guy named Timothy, and what he's writing is about the care of widows in the church. The church, uh, so one of the big differences between ancient Israel and the church is that the church sort of crosses family boundaries. Mm -hmm. So you and I are not related. Correct. Right. Not even a little bit. Nope. Except for the blood of Jesus. Mm -hmm. That makes you my sister. Correct. My much younger sister. (laughs) Um, And so, but that creates an obligation for the way that I treat you and the way that you treat me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when the church crosses those boundaries, it's called a fictive kinship group. It's a fake family. I can give you an example. Okay, if you watch Big Bang Theory, and I watch it a lot, <laughs> it's like a fake family. Right? Mm-hmm. Who's the mom? Penny. Who's the dad? Leonard. Who's the baby? Sheldon. Sheldon. Yeah, exactly. And so there's these people, and they live in this kind of relationship, kind of this weird dysfunctional relationship, but the church is like a family. Mm-hmm. And so we have these mutual obligations towards one another. And so when um, when Paul wrote this, to Timothy, he's giving him instructions about how we're supposed to take care of widows in the church. Now, it'll go on to talk about the list, okay? And the church was the primary agent of benevolence in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. So if you had a woman who was a widow, she had no form of income, no family to help provide for her, then that would fall to the church because the state didn't really do anything for people. So that's the ancient world. In the modern world, what does that look like? Well, we have the Social Security program, mm-hmm. which does provide financially for some of our older folks. What doesn't it provide? Transportation. Transportation, sure, yeah. So we we have a, um, a, an older lady who needs transportation, and one of our folks has been helping her out. You know, that's part of what the church does. Mm-hmm. What else? What I can think of. Um. That's the big one that I can think of, like mm-hmm. getting to doctors. And You're going to have to hit the cricket sound next time. I think it's the yellow one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> when I think about that, like there's yard work, you know, things that they can't do if they're living mm. semi-independently. Uh, my mom lives mostly independently. She does need help with yard work from time to time, and so that's where my brothers, you know, that's their, that's their obligation because they're close by. Mm-hmm. When I go down, I, I try to make sure that I'm doing something to help her. Mm-hmm. Um, Housework. Housework, yeah. All those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also this need for companionship. Yes. Just one of the things, one of the greatest gifts a young person can give an old person is their time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you just drop in and just, you know, eat the stale cookies and drink the weak coffee, that's <laughs> that's a thing. You or know? super strong coffee. Or Well, it should be, <laughs> as God intended. If you're going to drink coffee, don't fool around. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's now it's not lever at marriage, right? Right. <clears throat> but what, like, how could we 
if you were going to order a society better towards the care of older people, how would you do that? Just let's have a let's have a brain moment here. Let's let's just imagine. Okay. Imagine if church people bought every other house on a block. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then across age, you know, ages and generations, and then lived as an example of taking care of one another because they live in close proximity. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, who would do that? Right? What kind of crazy person would not live where they want in order to buy a house close by the other church? Live by other church people? Have you met people? I don't want to be close to other people. <laughs> no, I do, right? Yeah. And that's where, um, I mean, imagine that. Mm-hmm. That would that could be something really incredible. If people committed to do something unusual, weird, for the purpose of ministry, for the purpose of helping other people. Could it work? Maybe. If nothing else, you know, we live in a small town, and so there are a lot of people who already you know, look out for each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, my neighbor watches my dog from time to time when my dog lets them in the house. <laughs> um, but I think there's a lot to learn from the ancient world as we look at the intent behind Leverett marriage is care and security for our widows. The intent behind what Paul tells Timothy is that the church should be actively involved in the care of older people. Mm-hmm. We as a society, we tend to get so busy in the middle of our lives that at the end of our lives, we've, we don't have the relational context and the social context to do the best that we can mm-hmm. for older people. Maybe that'll change, you know? We'll see. We'll see. You'll see. I'm already old. <laughs> okay, so thinking back to our procedure. As you read the book of Ruth, you write things down. And as you write things down, you kind of go on a on a hunt. You know, not a wild goose chase. Don't chase wild geese. You don't need to work out the numbers. You don't need to count the letters. That's that's a bad um, procedure. But using your study Bible, it'll give you guidance about what other passages to look at. Mm-hmm. It'll even give you little maps so you can see where Moab is in relationship to the people of Israel. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, and then, you know, as you ask questions, you'll find answers and you'll, you'll sharpen and sharpen and sharpen your understanding of what the Bible is and what it means for you. So yetis. Yes. What's your final opinion about yetis? Uh, I'm a no on yetis. No? No. Like a hard no? Hard no. I'm, I'm going to Wikipedia yetis. While we're outroing here. Hey, this has been the Unqualified Scholar. I hope this helps you pick up your Bible. Yep, the unbottable snowman. Read it a little better. <laughs> <laughs>